Lord, we just thank you that we get to be here, God, and we thank you that we get to look at the Sermon on the Mount. God, I just ask that you would send your spirit to us even now, God, that you give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. God, that you'd put aside all other distractions, all other things that are on our mind, and you would direct us, Holy Spirit, to gaze at the man Jesus, to see what he's concerned with, to see what he desires, what's on his heart and on his mind. God, that we would be as passionate about this passage as you are. God, I ask you'd connect us to your heart. God, every verse, every word, God, that it wouldn't go amiss on us. God, I thank you that we get to look at it, that I get to look at it once again. God, that it wouldn't become stagnant to it, God, that it would still be alive, fully alive. God, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, come breathe and speak to us. We're here for you. We're here to see what Jesus is like. Reveal Jesus to us. Thank you, in Jesus' name. So, Sermon Mount, here we go. Um, I have notes. I don't usually hand out the notes for the first class, but I'll have them for all the rest of the classes. Um, some people like them. I don't know if some people hate them. They don't tell me. So if you hate them, you don't have to tell me. Just keep it to yourself. But I'll have them, and it'll probably help you. Um, I don't know. People... I think they're helpful. So I'm going to give them to you. So if I'm talking too fast, you're like, whoa, what are you talking about? And then you can look back in the notes and have it all there. Now, just a note about the notes, right, if that's not weird enough, um, is that they started out as my own personal notes. They weren't for this class, right? So what I did when I taught this class, I thought, well, I'll just take all my notes. And I slowly tried to adapt them where some of it's like half written for you guys and half of it's written for me. So there may be a point where like, I don't get why that's written down here. So just take that into consideration as you read the notes, is that they were actually just for me, my personal use at first. Um, so we're sermon out. This is actually a picture of a church they built on the location where they think the Sermon on the Mount is, right? It's like pretty beautiful, right? That's the Sea of Galilee out there. And uh, whoever this photographer is, he did a great job. So it was me. But uh yeah, that's actually a certain amount. So when you envision it, like, it's actually kind of a beautiful setting. Can you imagine that sitting there listening to Jesus teaching? You have this awesome lake out there. Now, obviously, all these trees are, like, after Jesus, so we don't know what trees were there when he was there, but uh, it's a beautiful location. Uh, my name is William MacGyver, if you didn't know. Um, about me, I moved to Bethel. My family moved here in 2002. So that is, like, 19 years ago or something. After that, I went away to the Marine Corps for a little bit. Then I came back, right? And I've lived here since then. Um, in that time, I've pretty much been working here at the church also. Um, I started security. Then I did custodial. And then I did calendar. Then I came back to do the custodial team. And that's what I've been doing for a while. During that time, I got my degree from Simpsons, a Bachelor in Bible and Theology. And so I'm going to throw a little bit of that knowledge at you guys. And I'm going to press you a little bit. And part of it is I want to stretch you to learn some concepts and terms that maybe you're not familiar with, right? So if it's a little heady, I want you just, if you're like, I don't really like that stuff. I just like emotional stuff. I love to like feel the presence of Jesus. I don't want to think too much. Just press through it a little bit and realize that God created you with the mind. He said that you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, and mind, right? Like it's actually honoring to God to use the capacity he gave you to engage with his word with. That's actually loving him when you use your mind to think about the text, right? It's not in contrast to like feeling the spirit or something. They're not in opposition. Um, so I did that. I studied Greek for two years there. So 
that was probably my favorite part about it. And if anybody's thinking about, yeah, I'm sorry, finished with school ministry, I'm going to go to like a theological seminary or something, like go for it. I think the best thing about it is that it can help you ask good questions of the text. It doesn't answer all of your questions. You can't learn all of the Bible. It's too much, right? But it can teach you to ask really good questions and give you safeguards like, well, that's actually a bad way of thinking about the Bible, and I can adjust that. So uh, hopefully some of that will come across in this class. Um, I'm, I'm looking at it. It says married for 12 years. I'm like, is that right? Did I forget to update this? We got married in 2008, whatever that makes it now. And the four kids, that's still true. Uh, who knows for how long. But And this is a picture of them. That's my wife, Natasha, and me at Carmel Beach, one of my favorite places. Those are my four kids. Jed, Audrey, Gwen, and Maribel. They're pretty much that same height, probably a little bit taller. But yeah, that's us. All right, so as we start um, books, I'm going to recommend some books to you for studying this. So my hope is that you guys don't just come here and sit and listen to me talk. That would be a bummer for me if that's all you do this whole time in this class. You just come, you listen to me talk, and you don't engage with the text, and you don't develop a hunger for more. I will be let down and bummed on the inside. Obviously, I will never know if you do or don't. But I want to give you some books that I've read through that I really like that help me in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and just so you're not freaking out and copiously, like, writing notes on everything, if you want this, I'll send it to you as a PDF, all right? So uh, write down the stuff you really like, but you can focus on what I'm saying. Uh, so D.A. Carson, anybody know of D.A. Carson? One guy, one guy. This is sad. No, I'm joking. Uh, D.A. Carson, he is probably one of the premier theologians, I would say, alive today, right? And what I love about him is he loves Jesus, you know? So it's not just heady stuff. Like, he actually cares about living before Jesus, and he's super smart. This is probably my second favorite book on the Sermon on the Mount that I've read. Um, so I recommend it. It's a super good book. Uh, here's another one. Who's heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones? Hey, there we go. Welsh. I don't know, I want to say revivalist pastor over there. Uh, you can still find some of his audio recordings online from when he actually preached. He's dead now, but this is his book on the studies in the Sermon on the Mount. It is more of um, taking, he was a preacher, right, and he preached at a church. And this is more like his teaching series at a church. So that's kind of the flavor and feel of it. It's good. Uh, who's heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? And if you didn't know, The Cost of Discipleship is actually a book on the Sermon on the Mount, basically, right? Tricky title, Cost of Discipleship, but as we're going to learn, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is basically what it looks like to be a disciple, like when you break it down in our own language. Uh, another one that's really good uh, by Scott McKnight is the Story of God Bible Commentary Series, and his is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I would recommend that book also. And now, probably the one that I found the most and I've stolen the most from for this class and my own notes is this book by Jonathan T. Pennington, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. His stuff is just so good. He's got so much good stuff. This is the number one book I would recommend on the subject if you were only going to buy one book. Now, this is, this is a great book, too. This whole series of exegetical summaries, like they got like the whole Bible, highly recommend this series of commentaries because of the way it goes about doing it. What it does is it goes on the Greek or Hebrew text, and it presents the words, and it says, here are the questions you would have to ask because of the way the text is constructed. And so it leads you through processing, how should I think about this text? And then what it does is it quickly cites all the commentaries and what, where they land on the issue. 
So you get a quick summary of what is the question that we would ask because of the way the text is, and what are the answers some guys give, right? So it doesn't go into great depth, but it gives you a quick overview of a lot of stuff, and it teaches you how to ask good questions of the Bible. And so sometimes you're like, whoa, I never even thought to ask that question. But because these guys have been doing it for a long time, they lead you. And it, the more you read it, the more it becomes part of you. And you start to ask those questions. When you're reading on your own, you're like, oh, yeah, I should be thinking like that. And so it helps you become a better reader of the Bible. So I love that series. So I recommend it. Uh, I'm going to read you a very long quote here. So just you can read with me. This is actually what they say. Do not do on a PowerPoint. Do not put a giant text up there. But I just... We got to read it because it's so good. It's, it's by C.S. Lewis, right? And he says this. He says, there's a strange idea that in every subject, the ancient books should be read only by the professionals and that the amateur should content himself with the modern books. Thus, I have found as a tutor in English literature that if the average student wants to find out something about Platonism, uh, the very last thing he thinks of doing is to take a translation of Plato off the library shelf and read the symposium. He would rather read some dreary modern book 10 times as long, all about isms and influences and only once in 12 pages telling him what Plato actually said. The error is rather an amiable one, for it springs from humility. The student is half afraid to meet one of the great philosophers face to face. He feels himself inadequate and thinks he will not understand him. But if he only, the great man, just because of his greatness, is much more intelligible than his modern commentator, the simplest student will be able to understand, if not all, yet a very great deal of what Plato said. But hardly anyone can understand some modern books on Platonism. It has always, therefore, been one of my endeavors as a teacher to persuade the young that firsthand knowledge is not only more worth acquiring than secondhand knowledge, but is usually much easier and more delightful to acquire. So the irony is I just told you a whole bunch of books to read on the Sermon on the Mount, right? So you're like, wait a minute, well, this quote's kind of saying, don't do that, right? And I'm saying, let's do both, right? But remember that the best way you can learn the Sermon on the Mount is to engross yourself in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't just read it once. Don't just read it once a day for a week and be like, dude, now I've got it. Give yourself to this passage week after week, month after month, year after year, and I promise you, you will not find the depths of this well. You will keep plumbing it and say, oh my goodness, I didn't see that before. I didn't realize this is how Jesus feels. I'm not connected to this. I've missed this for lo so long. I've misunderstood it. So keep plumbing those depths and keep going to it. And having read, uh, I don't want to say a lot, but having read a fair amount of commentaries at this point in my life, one of the things that I realize now is that a lot of times they're making observations that any of us could make. They're just really careful readers of the text. They're just reading very carefully, very slowly, and making really good observations. Like, hey, that sounds a lot like over here. You know, that's the same word. Man, he said this thing seven times now in the last paragraph. And so they're observations that any of us can make. You don't need to know Greek or Hebrew to start catching on to those things if you're a careful reader of the text. So I want to um, compel you to do that and to make it your goal to become a better reader. Um, so how did I come to study this? Um, trying to remember my PowerPoint where this goes from here, but I don't have my notes synced up with my PowerPoint, so it's a little, like, jacked up. Um, so in 2017, right, every time before the new year comes, so let's say it's 2016, it's like November-ish, I start thinking, I want, like, a vision statement for my life for the year, right? It's just, like, my own little thing I do, and I think, and basically what I mean is I want, like, a general enough verse or a passage from the Bible that I can 
have as a staple for the year that I'm going to press into, right? And I don't want it so pointed usually that, like, it's hard to capture into the rest of my life, right? So I'm kind of just seeking. I'm reading Scripture. I'm just kind of open to the Holy Spirit, and I'm just doing that. So a lot, what that looks like a lot of times is just reading a lot of Bible, just reading a lot of Bible until something strikes me, right? So I'm doing this, and I come across Proverbs 16.9. I don't know if I have this here. Yeah. And it says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So I'm just kind of meditating on that. And what that means for me is I'm just kind of like saying it under my breath, like over and over, just reading it. The heart of a man finds his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You know, I'm doing this for a while. So I think, you know, it doesn't say a good heart of a man. It doesn't say a bad heart of a man. And so, I, I mean, I'm just speculating. I'm saying, well, if I have a bad heart, it's going to plan my way. And the Lord's going to give me over to it. And that, that's backed up in other parts of Scripture, right? Like Thessalonians talks about this. And then I say, well, if I have a good heart, that's going to plan out my way for my life. And the Lord's going to establish me in that path. And so I began to think, man, I really want to have a good heart, Lord. I want to have a good heart before you. So I, I continue to keep reading. And I come across another verse that's similar, right? And it says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. So I think, I begin to say to myself, Lord, I want to delight in your way, in my inner man, in my inner being. I want to delight in your ways, even when my natural man doesn't like his ways. Let me tell you, the Sermon on the Mount, you're not human if it doesn't confront you at some level and say, I don't actually like doing this. We like it in concept. I love it all in concept and all in theory. I'm like, man, this is a beautiful way of living. It's wonderful. If we all we live like this, it'd be great. And then someone's mean to me, and I'm like, I'm going to destroy them. And I'm like, I don't actually like doing the Sermon on the Mount most of the time. I love talking about it. I love theorizing about it and thinking about it and saying how beautiful it is. And, oh, my goodness, it's awesome. And then it comes that moment when someone steps on what I want. And they offend me, and all of a sudden, all this self-righteous anger rises up, and I code it in all this religious language, and how wrong they were to do that, and how God wants me to, you know, justice, 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 and we use all this stuff to defend an unrighteous spirit on the inside of us. I say, God, I want to delight in your ways where I allow others to mistreat me, and I still love them in the midst of it. I say, I want to delight in your ways. So this became my vision statement uh, in my own life. I mean, I typically don't share this stuff with people just because it relates to this class, right? And this was my statement for 2007, that I would be more concerned about my interior life in Christ than my external reputation, influence, or desired ministry. I said, I'm going to put on hold all thoughts for anything else. I mean, if you're like me, it's easy. Also, I'm daydreaming, like, what am I going to do? How God's going to use me? Like, what am, am I going to be able to speak and teach, da, 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 lead worship, whatever, and a thousand other things? Or am I going to be a missionary in this country? What opportunities are going to be before me? Blah, 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 blah. I said, I'm going to shut all of it down. And every time it comes up, I'm going to say, nope, not thinking about that this year. I am focused on one thing, that I would have a beautiful place on the inside that the Lord could come and dwell and that he wouldn't have to be exhausted fighting my fleshly nature on the inside. That he could be at rest inside of me. I said, I want to have an interior that Jesus enjoys. Right? And it makes me think, I mean, you're going to find out, and maybe you already know, maybe, I don't know how familiar I was from out, that it is mostly all about what we do on the inside. It's very concerned with what nobody can see. Jesus looks at the heart of a man, right? We know this with David. He's concerned with what no one can see. 
we look at the external, right? I mean, the great example of this recently is Ravi, right? Ravi Zacharias, right? Everybody knows what's going on there. I can just say that. And so there's a man where he has all the external reputation, the influence, but apparently he never managed his heart on the inside. I don't know about you, but it terrifies me when those things come out. Not because I'm like, oh my gosh, he's the worst dude ever. I think, oh my gosh, I could be just like him. Well, Ravi, Ravi, he's a big apologist, right? And so he ended up, he died and everybody honored him. And then it came out like he had done some abhorrent um, abuses, right? Before, beyond just immorally falling sexually, like he was seducing and bringing people in, like really bad. You could look it up. Um, and it's basically all true. It's not like speculation at this point. So the point is, if we don't manage the inside, if we don't take the Sermon on the Mount to the heart, our propensity is to do exactly what Ravi did. You and I are no different than him. You and I are fully capable of doing exactly what Ravi did unless we hear the words of Jesus and we take them to heart. Unless we say the primary thing I must focus on in my life is what do I look like to Jesus on the inside? What is going on in my thought life? No one knows what you're thinking about. Only Jesus knows. And so... Let's go on. How shall we begin? You know, my goal, you know, I didn't ask anybody to teach this class. I didn't, I didn't seek it out, right? So my goal isn't just to teach a class. This isn't the dream of my heart, being up here. That was a little interesting for me because I think this is the fourth year I'm doing this now, and I do it two to three trimesters a year, and then I do some equip classes at night for the local church. So I've now done the Sermon on the Mount like a bajillion times in my head, right? And I'm actually very thankful to Jesus for that. I was actually praying about that the other night, and I was just saying, thank you that you've hemmed me into this, that I don't get to get too far away and forget it and get it on the back burner and the back pages of, there's so many other things I've got to study. What about the minor prophets and the major prophets? And what about the historical books? And what about the Pauline epistles and the gospels? And, and Jesus says, Will, what I have for you is the Sermon on the Mount, and you're not going to get too far away from it. And I actually think, wow, you're so kind, Jesus, to set me up this way where no matter what, I have to come back and I got to look at it again because guess what? Well, you got to stand up for an hour and a half and talk to people about the Sermon Mount. And if you don't have it and you're not thinking about it, you're going to do a terrible job. And so he's hemmed me into it. But my goal isn't just to teach a class. So one of the first times I was doing this class, right, it occurred to me because you're like, you know, I, I want to teach people, right? Like it's a desire in my heart, but it's not. You don't know if it's like, is that the one thing I'm seeking? Am I actually seeking Jesus or am I actually seeking influence? You know what I mean? Is that what I actually like? I actually want that more than Jesus. And I don't know until you're put in that situation. And it occurred to me when I was teaching class one day, I was going to do it. And I realized, you know what? I actually like going home and praying and reading the word more than I like going and teaching that class. And it was a moment of relief in my own heart where I said, oh, my gosh, I do have the first thing in first place. And that doesn't mean the rest of my life it'll be that place, but I've got to keep a guard on it and say, am I loving the attention of man more or am I loving being with Jesus and hearing his words more? What do I want more? And so we just got to keep a guard on that. So how shall we begin, right? And, you know, my other goals isn't to impress you with what I know, isn't it to throw Greek words so you say, wow, that was an amazing class. My goal isn't that you go back to Rich and tell Rich, man, that's amazing, da, da, da. You should, I, that's cool and all, but it's not the desire of my heart. The desire of my heart, what I would be pleased with is if you guys walk away and in 10 years from now, you are loving the Lord with the Sermon on the Mount, actually in 
flowing through your life, that would make me happy. On that day when I stand before Jesus, he says, hey, guess what, Will? Some of those students, guess what? They took it to heart and they loved me well because of what you said. It inspired them to change the way they lived and to deny themselves, right? And to allow abuse and mistreatment to come their way and not to retaliate. That's the dream of my heart. That that would be where you guys would go with this. That it wouldn't be my name's fame, but it would be Jesus' fame in your life. That that would come forth from this. You know, along those lines, it's not enough for you to come to a class. It's not enough for you to say, well, I did the BSSM thing. I did it two years, three years. I took some Bible AMTs. Man, I'm the hardcore student. I signed up for like four Bible AMTs, and I only had to do one or two. I don't know what the rule is. And look how tense I am, and I did that a long time ago. That will benefit you nothing on the day of Christ. It has to make its way into your life for the rest of your life. And to go along with that, Another person can't do it for you. I, I'm not a guy who loves to read books. I never was, right? When I was in school and you had to read a book report, I picked a book that had a picture on every other page, right? Like, I did not like it. But I know that knowing the Lord, for whatever reason, he chose the book as the primary way for the last 2,000, 4,000 years to communicate what he's like to his people. And I ask him that question. I never get an answer, but I always say, Why? Why a book? Why? I mean, it could have been anything else. I mean, it's shocking to me. And the fact that Jesus' title is the word. Words. Why would he make one of his identities tied to linguistic things like a word? It's just strange to me. But I realized, as I said, if I'm going to know God, right, and knowing God is actually intimacy, that's actually the high point of all Christianity is knowing God. That's the language the Bible uses, the knowledge of God. If you have the knowledge of God. So knowing God isn't just this heady intellectual thing. It's knowing what he is. The primary way in which you and I do that, it's not the only way, but it's the primary way, is by reading the Bible. What? I thought it was the Spirit. Guess what the Spirit does? John 14 and 17. He brings to remembrance all that Jesus said. That's how we do it. As simple as it is, you want to know God, you just sit in your boring little bedroom and your boring little time and you just read the Bible. And it's boring at first, and you do it, and you do it week after week, month after month, year after year. And all of a sudden, you look back after a decade, and you say, oh, my gosh, my heart's alive. But it started out with boring discipline of reading the Bible. So we've got to give ourselves to it. So how shall we begin? So we're going to begin with prayer. We're going to pray that the Lord would open our eyes to see what he has to say. We've got to engross ourselves in prayer over the text. Right? We can't just leave it to our own intellectualism. We've got to connect with him, right? We've got to abide. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that means you have to dialogue with him about the text. We're going to read the Sermon on Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What ways am I not being poor in spirit? How can I be poor in spirit? What other verses give me insight in what it looks like to be poor in spirit? This is how we have to engage with the text on your own. I cannot do it for you. I cannot. You have to do it. This class will be worthless for you. It will be a testimony against you on the day of the Lord unless you go and do this. He'll say, you were in that class and you didn't hear what was said. You have to do it on your own. So ears to hear, right? Did you know that is, I, th- I think Dan said this. Did somebody say this preaching recently? I forget where I heard. Maybe it was a sermon I heard online. But. Ears to hear. This is the most repeated exhortation in Scripture from Jesus' mouth. 
He doesn't repeat anything more than this. He says to him who has ears to hear, him who has ears to hear, him who has ears to hear, why does Jesus feel the need to keep saying this to us? It implies that we don't naturally hear what he has to say. That our natural disposition is to reject and not hear what he has to say. We, we, we crouch it, we twist it up, we say, no, 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 it doesn't mean that, it means something else. Or no, I'm walking that out, I love my enemies, are you kidding me? And then your roommate doesn't pay you back five bucks for gas, and you're like, we got to kick them out of the house. They don't honor me. Boundaries. But I love my enemies. And we fail to see the incongruency with that because we can't hear what Jesus is like. If you want, go to Hebrews 5.11 with me really fast. And if you're like, hey, I thought we were going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. What are we doing, Well, My goal is to get you doing this. To pumped up to hear the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to talk about it a little bit. The next week's we're going to go hardcore. Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, line by line, verse by verse. But this week I want to prep you to do it. So Hebrews 5.11. Now one of the bummers with any translation of a Bible, any translation of anything is there aren't word-for-word translations you can do. It just, language doesn't work like that, right? Because in English, we'll have various meanings for a word, and they can't convey the Greek and the Hebrew or whatever. So we have to use multiple words to translate, you know, maybe a single word or multiple different words, right? So what that does is when you read English Bibles, is everybody reading English Bibles in here, or are there other languages too? If you're in another language, raise your hand. Okay, what languages are you guys reading? German, I heard. Chinese. So same, yeah, Russian. Portuguese. So as you're reading, the same thing is going to occur in your Bible, right? And we're going to miss underlying words in the Greek or the Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek, right? The, the Old Testament is in Hebrew. There's very little Aramaic in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's mostly Hebrew or mostly Greek. So in 5.11, look at this verse. Hebrews 5.11 says, about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So the author of Hebrews is coming up against the same problem Jesus came up against. The people he's talking to have an inability to hear what the Lord is saying. He's saying it's hard for you guys to get this because you have a spirit of dullness on you. Now, a lot of times I look at myself and I think, I've got a spirit of dullness. When I read the word and it doesn't cut to the heart and it doesn't pierce me and I don't feel the love of the Father and I'm not connecting, I think I've got a spirit of dullness on me. And the spirit of dullness, it can come from like outright sin and immoral stuff, but it can also come from just giving ourselves to too much good stuff, right? What is it in the parable of the sower? The, the sower is the cares of this life choke out the word. The cares of life. Some of those cares are genuine good cares. It's when they begin to choke it out. I watched too much Disney Plus this week, and all of a sudden the word's not as alive as it used to be. I've been hanging out with my friends every night of the week, and I haven't once prayed. You're going to be dull when you read the word. That's how it works. You cannot expect to open the word and give yourself to everything else 99% of the time, then come to the word when it works for you and casually approach and think it's going to be alive and exciting on your heart. Your heart grows cold in that time. You've got to come back to it and get near God and for him to make it come alive again. So there's this problem and this word dull here in 511. The same word shows up down in um, 612. So it says this. So they can't hear, right, the Hebrew audience. They're having a problem with it. And then in 6.12 it says, 
so that you may not be sluggish. That's the same word for dull there. Those are the same exact word in the Greek, but we miss it in the English because it's two different words, right? We lack the connection. And he says, so that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the provinces. Do you see the connection? If we have dull hearing, we'll become dull in our actions, right? And then we won't inherit the promises of God. So how you spend your time and how you cultivate ears that can hear, a heart that's alive when it reads the word, results in how you live your life, which results in how, if you, if you inherit the promises of God, you are not guaranteed to inherit every God, everything God has planned for your life. That is contingent on how you respond to him. That's kind of a shocker for a lot of people. They kind of assume, well, I thought in Christ, when I got saved, I get everything. No, 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 you get to inherit eternal life. That's guaranteed in Christ. But everything else in your life is up to you and how you respond to him. You could deny everything he wants for your life. We know this in real life, right? But somehow we don't connect it to our spiritual lives. We just kind of assume like, hey, I can do whatever, but God's still going to make it happen. No, you can throw away your destiny in God if you squander your time. You have to cultivate ears that can hear if you want to inherit everything God has destined for your life. There's no other way. So he goes on. Look, go back to Matthew 17, 5. So this is the Mount of Transfiguration. We're getting closer to the Sermon on the Mount, right? We're working our way back. So this is, this is a stunning passage to me. I mean, it's always a crazy passage because it's the Mount of Transfiguration, right? But it became stunning to me when I began to see something, how unique it was. So we know it. He goes up on the mountain, Peter, John, right, James, and he's transfigured before them. They get to see his glory that he's going to walk in in the future. And Peter's like, hey, let me build something for you guys. And then in the middle of Peter saying this, if you're looking at verse 5, he says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You know how many times the Father speaks directly in the New Testament? Anybody have a guess? It's like three or four times. And they're like one sentences each. I mean, the Father doesn't take up that much space with his direct oration in the New Testament. But four times maybe. I forget the exact number. And that makes me ask, what, what is so important about what he wants to say that he doesn't entrust it to an angelic messenger? That he doesn't let some prophet decree? John the Baptist couldn't be entrusted with declaring this. Why does the Father say, I'm going to rend the heavens and shout this and declare it? Why is it so important that the Father has to do it? What is so urgent? What is so necessary? What is so that he would do this and say this thing? I mean, let's read it again. He says, this is my beloved son. We're not going to comment on that. With whom I'm well pleased. Not going to comment so much there, right, that the Father thinks this is what he wants to say. This is what's burning in his heart. And then what does he say? Listen to him. I mean, the Father has to trumpet that from heaven to humanity. That tells us the problem of our ability to hear is really bad. It is really severe 
that the father has to release it and say it because the command and the command from God or from Jesus is always the promise of his enabling to do it. That he has to say, I have to do this to get them the ability to hear what I want to say, to hear what Jesus has to say. So the father says, listen to him. I've given you Jesus. Listen to his words. And for us, practically, what that means is go home and read the Sermon on the Mount. Go home and read it. That is how you actually listen to Jesus. That's how it starts. It's so simple. We think it's got to be glorious and grand, and we have to have visions and get caught up to heaven to hear Jesus. You don't. You just have to read his words. That's what he's put it down there for all humanity. Like, you don't have to be the elite prophet who had a trip to the third heavens on a chariot and heard all this stuff to know God. He says, I want it accessible to all. I'm revealing the innermost parts of who I am in every red word in your book of your Bible. He's like, go ahead. If you want to know me, it's, it's all there for you. You don't have to get caught up to heaven to know me. And it's up to us. If we want to, we get to respond. And that's what motivates me in the morning. I get up at five usually. And I hate getting up at five. I never once, I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. Woo, I'm up. I'm always like, why the frick am I doing this? This sucks. You know, I don't say that, but my emotions are not happy emotions, right? And I get up and I do my little routine. I get my Bible, right? And I do it. And I don't, I don't always feel God's presence. Most of the time, I'm just going through the motions, right? But I know that God's looking at it. And he sees little old Will. And I imagine the father talking to Jesus, say, look, he's doing it again. And Jesus is like, aren't you going to pour out your presence on him and let him feel you? And the father's like, let's hold back. Let's see if he'll still press in if I don't. Will he still show up again tomorrow if I don't give him that wow encounter? If I don't give him the heavy revy tomorrow, will he still come? And so I imagine that in those days that are really sucky. And I say, okay, here I am, Jesus. I know you're watching. I know this is fruitful even if it doesn't feel powerful. This is going to produce more fruit and give me a foundation in my life that will benefit me more than the, whoa, crazy moments might. Say, God, this is worth it even if it doesn't feel like it's worth it. I know this is what you have for me. Here I am. I'm listening to him, Father. I have ears. I want to hear speak. And I read the words. And I do it again and I do it again. And that's how we enter into this. So we want to read the Sermon on the Mount, right? Because we're, we're fo- this applies to a lot of places, but right now we're focusing on the Sermon on the Mount. We want to read for personal transformation. A primary goal to read the Sermon on the Mount isn't so we can go preach and teach it, right? I mean, that is actually one of the goals. It's just not the primary goal. The primary goal isn't for me to teach it. It's for, and I'm about to give this away, but one of the other reasons we read it is for personal transformation. We want to hear it and say, oh, my goodness, it's talking to me. I have an anger issue. Didn't realize I did, but I do. Jesus, forgive me. Help me. Show me the areas where I have anger unperceived and let me root them out of my life. Show me the way to freedom from it. Right? So not only do we read for personal transformation, but I would say there's one more higher way that we read Scripture. Anybody have a guess? Everybody's like, I don't want to do it. That's on the spot. I don't want to be wrong. Right? We read to know what God's like. That is the highest way we read Scripture. Right? Personal transformation doesn't come above that. Preaching and teaching and preaching the gospel, those aren't the highest reasons why. It's to see what he's like and to be fascinated with his beauty. They say, this is what you care about, Jesus? What does this say about him that he wants to write this down for all time? What does this say about the things that he has on his mind that he's thinking? I mean, Jesus, I was talking to a friend the other day, he walks a lot of places a lot of times. I mean, that takes time. I mean, if you go from Galilee to Jerusalem, I'm like, it's like 150 miles from now. I don't know what it is. 
Like, how many days does that take to walk? What are you doing all day when you're walking? What is Jesus meditating on as he's walking from Galilee down to Jerusalem? What is he thinking about? What is he musing on? And I think this sermon is our first glimpse into the musings of Jesus and what he's thinking about when no one else is talking to him. You don't just speak, right? The Bible says you speak out of the overflow of the heart. This was in the heart of God, these subjects that we're going to look at. So some questions we want to think about as we start out. Uh, who's read the Sermon on the Mount? What do you guys remember? Give me sound bites. One of the Beatitudes. What else? Besides the Beatitude. Salt. I heard salt over here. Salt, light, something. Do not worry. Don't be anxious. Yes, good. Lord's Prayer, right? Good. And, and kind of what I'm begging the question here is, it's going to be real hard to get this deep on the inside if we don't know what it is. Right? Like, we, like, sometimes we luck into living out the godly value system, right? And the Holy Spirit just gets us there. But a lot of times he waits for us. He says, I'll wait for you. I'm patient. I'm not going to force this on you. If you want it, come and seek me. Come and find it. Right? So we've got to learn it. So ask yourself, you don't have to say this out loud, but how familiar with it are we? Right? Do we know what the Beatitudes are? Anybody know how many Beatitudes there are? Eight, 15, 10, 12. Okay, the answer is no. As a group, we do not know. So, no, uh, it's a kind of a trick question. Eight or nine, however you divide them up, right? The point, once again, is if we don't know them, it's much harder for us to be actually engaged in living them out, right? We have to have some insight into them. And it was begs question, has the sermon made its way into our lives practically? And some of you are like, well, I hope so, but I don't know because I don't know what's in there, Right? And we want to answer that question in this class, right? No one can judge another person, right? Like, unless you can see hearts. And so I don't know anybody who has that ability yet, but I don't. So really, it's looking at ourselves. And ultimately, when I read the sermon, I said, do I feel the same way about this passage of Scripture as Jesus does? Do we value it the way he values it? I mean, that's ultimately what I'm concerned with. I want to stand in unity and agreement with Jesus 100%. Even if it's not cool and it's unpopular and I lose privilege and whatever I lose, even relationships, I want to stand with Jesus. I want to value things the way he values them. And if it's low priority, I want it to be low priority for me. If it's super high priority, I want it to be super high priority, right? Higher lows, I want it to go that way. So just some interesting facts about the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most taught passage of the Bible since Jesus died and rose again. How the heck do you know that, Will? Yeah, I don't know. I read that in some books. But it's also one of the most quoted passages in Christian writings since then, right? Like, that's something we can measure, right? So it's one of the most taught passages of the Bible since Jesus died and rose again. It's the most referred to passage in the early church writings. That tells us that in the early church, closest to the apostles, they had a legacy passed on to them of the primacy of the place of the Sermon on the Mount in the Christian life. Right? So they got passed down that, hey, this is one of the premier things you guys need to have. Who here grew up as a Christian? Who here picked up that the Sermon on the Mount is one of the premier things you need to have in your life? One, two, three, four, five, six. Something like that, right? Not enough. Not enough. This should be basic Christianity for us. There you go. Look at that. 
Who wrote these notes? So another point with this basic Christian idea is this is not for elite Christians. This isn't for the Louis Ingalls, right, only, right? And like, hey, this guy has 40-day fast every day of the year, you know? Like, what? Like, it's not just for those types. This is for the new believer. This is for the grandma. This is for the grandchild. This is for everybody in every walk of life, the stay-at-home mom, the businessman, the preacher. This is for everybody. We don't get a pass. So when we read this and we get to some of the parts that we don't like, we're like, man, that is too hard. We don't get to just give the pass. Well, that's for the really extreme radical Christians. I'm just like an average Joe Christian, right? And like every BSM student's like, I'm not an average Joe Christian, right? I came to the BSSM. But like we do it in our heads. We assign somewhere that it's for somebody else, right? Like, yeah, the fasting thing, that's like optional. It's for, yeah, Lou and him alone, right? No. This is basic Christianity. This isn't the elites. This isn't like 10 years in. Once you've been doing Christianity 10 years, then, then you can take on the Sermon on the Mount. You got to get some road behind you. No, this is for you day one, right? So no passage is more explicit on what it looks like to be a disciple. So if you're concerned with being a disciple, this should be one of your premier ones you care about. You know, the sermon shows us what Jesus is desiring in his followers, what he's looking for, what he's impressed with, what he considers great. It actually uses that language of what Jesus thinks is great. I don't know about you, but I greatly desire to be great in Jesus' eyes. Like, I want that more than anything. Like, I would love for the story of my life to be, we enter heaven and eternity, and Jesus says, Will was great in my eyes. If that happens, I will be so happy and flabbergasted. But the scary flip side is that Sir Mount says, some people are going to be called least. He's going to hold up some people and say, you know what? They loved me little. What, Jesus? Like, that's kind of hardcore. Are you really going to do that? He's really going to do that because guess what? He doesn't flatter with his words. And he's not going to diminish the honor of those who loved him by saying those who didn't love him, they're of equal love, right? He's, now, his love for everybody is equal. But he's going to honor those who loved him and say this, theirs was great. They greatly loved me, and it touched me deeply. And those who don't, he's not going to elevate them and say that they did when they didn't. He's going to let it be known. And uh, my sister, I think, she thinks that's the day when we're all weeping, right? He says every tear we wipe from their eyes, and it's after that moment, and then the tears get wiped. Maybe it's true. I'm not sure. You know, and the Sermon on the Mount, this is the way God created humans to flourish. So it's not just this rigorous burden that you have to bear, like, oh, my goodness, it's so tough, but if I'm going to be a serious Christian, I got to do this. This is actually the only way to find true happiness, Humans were created to live like this. And that's the irony of dismissing the Sermon on the Mount and not living out, is you will never be happy. You think it's easier to live another way? You will not have delight on the inside unless you live this way. You will have conflict and turmoil in your inner man unless you embody the Sermon on the Mount. Let's see. So, well, look at that cool picture. Another view of the Sea of Galilee near Sermon on the Mount. I know, you're like, dang, I wish I could be there right now. The disciples had it better than I thought. Man, I, my mind is just like dusty and dirty and gross all the time. But uh, all right, a little biblical background. So some of the questions we want to ask when we're looking at it and we're studying and we're using that, that mind thing that we have to actually see God, uh, where does the Sermon on the Mount come in the gospel according to Matthew? That gives us some insight into what it 
it's like and what purpose it serves, right? And let me see if this comes in the notes here. And another question, I'll answer this question in a second, but, you know, the gospel writer's perspective. Why here? How much time and space does he give to it? How does it fit into the gospel? Those are like basic questions we want to ask when you read any text. You want to say, is this like the primary thing? Is this the thesis statement? Or is this a supplementary idea that's helping build a bigger point? What purpose does the Sermon on the Mount serve in the book of Matthew as a whole? How much time? I mean, if the Sermon on the Mount was like uh, 26 chapters of 28 chapters of Matthew, like, man, that's really important. Like, that is the main thing he wants to say. It takes up almost the entire book. It doesn't, right? It takes up three chapters. But that doesn't mean it's insignificant. We say, well, why does he place it in the beginning? Why is it the first teaching we hear from Jesus? So we want to ask those questions and think about it, right? And now when you're doing that, you get an idea, and your first idea doesn't have to be the right idea. So just go softly when you go to your, like, home group and your friends are like, guess what? I was thinking about the Mount Wise first place, and this is why. And it's the first idea you had. Because I've done that enough times, and it came back, Ugh, that first idea was actually not a good idea. And so I just write them down, and I process through it, and I give it time until I'm certain, like, you know, I think this is why. And, and time is I tell that to my buddies, and I read other things. And I say, oh, you know what? That's starting to pan out. And then I gain more confidence that that was a true idea. And I say, oh, Yeah. And the more I do that, in time I get more confident, and then I get more bold in the way I declare it, right? So if you get a revelation, give it time before you're declaring it boldly. Let it be filtered by the word. Let it be filtered by your friends and see if they object and see what they say. And be like, okay, maybe. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I'm going to think about it a little more before you're losing all your relationships because they're not agreeing with you, right? So Jesus' perspective. I mean, this is a crazy one to think about. Jesus has had 30 years right, to think about what he's going to say the first time he addresses his followers. I mean, we know he was thinking about it when he was 12. He's in the temple. He knows what he's about. He knows from at least the age of 12 that he's called to do this. So from 12 on, at least, he's been thinking about, what am I going to say on that day when I gather that first crowd and I begin to decree what the Father's commissioned me to do? What am I going to say? How am I going to say it? You know what? Maybe I'll make these cool little repeted, repetitious phrases like blessed are the, blessed are the. Maybe that's a good way. Maybe I'll do that. And so this is the first time. I mean, usually students and everybody who's like doesn't get to speak in front of crowds all the time, we're like, the second we get the mic, we're like, we share everything we know, right? And we're itching to share what we have because we're all pent up. Jesus, 30 years, here he is. The most thing that's most dear in his heart, he finally gets to articulate and share it with those who are going to follow him. Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew, there's quizzes in this class, right? And there's homework and stuff like that. I forget what's on the quizzes, and I, I remember mostly what's on the homework, but I feel like what we're about to do is somewhere on one of those things. So I tell you that so you pay attention, right? And it's not like super exciting but it helps you learn a book. And one of the reasons I like um, the homework for this week is you have to make an outline. I'm going to try to help you because from doing this class for many times, I find out that most people don't understand what I mean when I say, hey, make an outline of the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want to make that a little bit easier on you. Um, but this five discourses is kind of an outline of the book of Matthew. And it gives us insight into the book of Matthew. So these five discourses, and what is, what is a discourse? It's a it's a length of teaching that Jesus gives, right? 
So Matthew has five of these times where it's a whole bunch of teaching of Jesus. Then it's divided up by like miracle stories and other things that happened. And then it's a big lengthy teaching of Jesus. That's the discourse. Well, there's five of these in the book of Matthew. And it's clear that Matthew is really intentional about the way he organized the book of Matthew. And even in the Sermon on the Mount, there's clear patterns and ways he divided it up. And when we understand them and we see them, it actually gives us insight into the meaning of the text. I mean, that's usually strange for most people. Like, well, I thought the meaning was just in the words and the sentence and the paragraph. Well, it's actually in the way he ordered it. It can give us insight into what, how we're supposed to understand it if we understand the outline. So that's my compelling speech that you would care about outlines, right? So chapter 5 through 7, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 10, it's the mission of the Messiah's messengers. Chapter 13, once again, you don't need copious notes. You can, I can email this to you if you want it. Chapter 13, Mysteries of the Messianic Kingdom Revealed in Parables. Chapters 18, 20, the Community of the Messiah. And then 23, 24 to 25 is the All That Discourse. So we got five things there, right? Does anybody know what a chiasm is? All right, so let's write this word up here. Chiasm. So there's a verse, right? And it's like, Verse 1, and it would be structured like this. A, B, C, C, B, A. It's a chiasm. And this is 1, 2, 1, 3, 4, 5. Everybody see that? So does anybody, so somebody's probably heard this. I don't know if Dan or Rich or somebody teaches this, right? What's the significance of a chiasm? The middle. What, what is that? What's the middle? What does that tell us? Main point. It's kind of like what they're emphasizing. It doesn't mean these verses up here and down here are irrelevant. Like, ah, just ignore those. We don't care about those. That's not what it is. It's just saying that, hey, this is what he's emphasizing a little more than everything else. Now, what we don't know is that if chiasms were so ingrained in the way they thought, they just did it naturally, or if it's always intentional. Because if you read the book of Isaiah, it's insane. There's like chiasms within chiasms, and it's like there's more than you can deal with. And you're just like, I don't even know what to do with this. It's like crazy. And so the point for our sake is, what do we have up there? We have five. What's the center one? Chapter 13. That tells us if our assumption is right, that this is a chiastic structure of the book of Matthew, that chapter 13 is actually the central emphasis of the worldview that a believer needs. What is chapter 13? It's the parable of the sower and the wheat and the tares, right? Please be right. Please be right. It's been a while since I looked at it, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Um, so that tells us center. But that tells us, guess what? As much as I want to be like, the sermon on the mount's the center. It's the most important. It serves a different purpose in Matthew's gospel. It's the introductory, basic Christianity is what it tells me. It's the first thing you've got to learn. It's the first thing. It's on the outset of being a follower of Christ. So enough of that. So one other thing, if you want to flip your Bibles, we're getting closer. We're getting closer to sermon out here. Go back to Matthew 4. I don't know if you're stretching if you got a question. Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. I don't have the answer to that. Yeah. Luke, Luke, so this is what scholars think. It seems roughly true to me. I don't know. 
uh, is that Matthew grouped like teaching together. It has a rough chronological order, but it seems like he gathered stuff and said, hey, you know what, this is the same subject matter I'm going to put together in my gospel. Luke seems a little more chronological, that he was being a little more careful to try to tell things as they happened. Um, I wouldn't be super hardcore about that, just a general principle. But Luke, he has Sermon on the Mount stuff, but it's like scattered a little bit, and it's not exactly the same. My thought on that is Jesus probably said this Sermon on the Mount stuff more than once. And Matthew, he could have, like, every time Jesus said, let me, read, let me rewrite down that same sermon. But instead, he's like, I'm just going to capture it all in essence at one point. And because it's introductory, Matthew's, his interpretation is saying, this is the first thing you need as a follower. And so that's kind of, I think, Matthew's point and why he put it in the beginning. So Matthew 4, 23 to 25. So if you want, you can just read it there yourself. Uh, he says, and when he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction and among, other, among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. For lack of a better, better way to describe it and describe it, describe it, and for our environment here, that sounds an awful lot like the way we describe revival, right? Everybody's getting healed, signs and wonders, crowds are falling. I mean, that's basically what we imagine and what we fantasize about, right? That's what we're dreaming of. And it's, it's amazing to me that the context in which the Sermon on the Mount comes to the forehead is in the midst of a time when all the crowds are following, all the signs and wonders are being done. And Jesus says, you know what? This is the teaching they need in the midst of revival. Let me teach you how to rightly interpret all the signs that you're seeing and all the healings. It's I'm calling you to live like this. So in a culture where we're all about revival, signs and wonders, healings, what should be one of the dominant messages that we carry to people in those places like that? Sermon on the Mount. That's what they need. Jesus wasn't lacking insight when he did this. He knew that people in those environments, this is what they need to hear first. This is what they need to prioritize in their lives when they've been touched, healed, delivered, and all this stuff. This needs to be the primary message that goes forth in the midst of those environments. So I'm not sure if my notes are in order here, but we're going to go for it. Kingdom of heaven. So one of the things, I'm just going to kind of mention this quickly. So kingdom of heaven this is a phrase that's big in Matthew and in Sermon Mount, and we got to kind of understand it. Because in the other Gospels, it says kingdom of God. And so a lot of people said, well, why? Why kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God? And one of the ideas that's commonly proposed, and I want to say that it's wrong, uh, is that he did that because Matthew is a Jewish author writing to a Jewish audience, and so he doesn't want to offend Jews by saying God. So instead, he says, kingdom of heaven, a little more PC, they'll receive my book better. Uh, there's a problem with that textually, is that the word kingdom of, the word God shows up 55 times in the book of Matthew. So if he doesn't want to offend them by saying kingdom of God, so he says kingdom of heaven, why does he say God 55 other times? And then not only that, but he says the phrase kingdom of God four times. Why does he say kingdom of God then four times if he was so careful not to say it? 
So basically it means that can't be the reason. That doesn't make sense. There must be another reason why. And why, and I hit my button too soon, but is Daniel 2 and 7. Or 2 through 7, but really should be 2 and 7. That dash is wrong. Uh, so Daniel 2 and 7. Who's familiar with Daniel 2 and 7? All right. I, I, that's what I expected. So tonight, you're going to go home, you're going to read Daniel 2 and 7, and you're going to reread it, and you're going to reread it, and you're like, I don't get it, Will. I'm not catching the significance, the kingdom of heaven with Daniel 2 and 7. Basically, I'm going to give you a synopsis really quick. They're basically the same message in both, in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Daniel 2 remembers that statue of Nebuchadnezzar, gold head, silver arm, blah, 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 uh, iron and clay feet, rock that's hewn by no human hand, right? No human hand, and it hits it at the bottom at the feet, and the whole thing crumbles down, and those, all those different metals, they represent different kingdoms of this world, all the kingdoms of this world essentially summed up, and it's Jesus, the rock, who brings them all down and crushes them. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that it's going to overcome the kingdoms of this world. So why is Matthew saying kingdom of heaven? He's hearkening back to Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. He's saying, hey, you remember that message that there's going to be a rock that's hewn? There's going to be a rock that's cast at the kingdoms of this world and it's going to bring them crumbling to the ground. That rock is Jesus and the message he's bringing is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is how you bring the kingdom of heaven to the earth. This is the rock. Living the Sermon on the Mount, establishing your life on that rock, right, chapter 7. And you build your life on that. And actually, that's the first crack in that statue when it comes down is us living out the Sermon on the Mount. That's how we topple the kingdoms of this world. By embodying the Sermon on the Mount. So Daniel 2 and 7, kingdom of heaven opposed to the kingdoms of this world. I'll just say it again, same idea. The Sermon on the Mount, that's what SOTM stands for, is Jesus inaugurating the values of the kingdom of God and his disciples on the earth. I mean, one of the big questions that I think we haven't answered well is what does it mean, the kingdom of heaven on the earth? In what ways is the kingdom of heaven on the earth? How? And so we've got to answer that question, and I'm going to give you one way. I'm going to say the primary way, right? And you can tease this out and search scripture and see if you think what I'm saying is right. I mean, don't accept it just because I say it. You need to believe it. It will do you no good. Once again, I keep talking about the day we stand for Jesus. It will do you no good saying, well, Will said, well, Bill said, well, Chris said, that will get you nowhere before Jesus. You have to know for yourself. There's a verse, I, I forgive it's in Peter where it is. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You've got to work it out for yourself. So I'm going to give you my opinions, but you've got to work it out for yourself, right? So the way that the kingdom of heaven is on the earth is that the value system, right, is in his people on the earth. I mean, he doesn't have a literal kingdom on the earth. He will one day. He doesn't right now. And guess what? You know the significance in Daniel 2 where it says there's a rock hewn by no human hand is that man's not going to establish his kingdom. It's not carved out by man's hand. You will not. The church will not be the ones who establish it. Mankind does not establish his kingdom. He establishes his kingdom. He's the one who does it. That's the point. So we don't have to go try to take over countries, right, the crusades and all this stuff. Like, that's not what we're about. The way we bring the kingdom to the earth is we first and primarily emphasize and live out the Sermon on the Mount. That is how we become kingdom of heaven on the earth, is that his people live it out on the inside. So 
We already talked about that. So here's another one. So before we get the sermon out, we look at the context around it, right? And we already did that a little bit with that, what I'm teaming a revival description in Matthew 4.23. But also we find out that there happens to be kind of an inclusio. Who knows what an inclusio is? See, this is the, the heady part I'm drafting you guys in to think a little. Inclusio, all right? Inclusio, I'm pretty sure this is somewhere on something. Homework, quizzes, somewhere, bonus point, I don't know. An inclusio, it's a bookend for another word, right? It means there's a phrase at the beginning, and that same phrase shows up at the end, and it means everything in between is basically um, is included within it, but it's the summary of what that means to do it, right? So here we have an inclusio, and the first one's in Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Matthew 3, 7, and Matthew 7, 15 to 20, this is at the end of the sermon. So we got it at the beginning, repent, kingdom of heaven. And then we have this idea before, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what is it, the, the reason it's inclusive is the Sermon on the Mount shows us what it means to repent. This is what repentance looks like. And this is what it looks like to bear fruit. If you're like me, there's a ton of passages that talk about having fruit. And they always scare me a little because they're a little ambiguous on what does fruit look like. And Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruit. And I'm like, well, what is the fruit, you know? And we have that, the fruits of the Spirit. And we're like, well, that's, Paul wrote that later. That's not exactly what Jesus says. So is that what Jesus is talking about? Is that why Paul says that? I'm not sure, 100%. Da, da, da. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is what a repentant lifestyle looks like and what it looks like to bear fruit. Whoa, you're telling me the fruit Jesus is looking for is almost exclusively internal? No one else can see it. That's the fruit he's looking for. Repentance that keeps him fruit with bearing fruit, right? So, basically I've said this, but the Sermon on the Mount is the foundational statement of what it means to repent and turn from sin. The Sermon on the Mount is what a repentant life looks like. And one of the reasons why it's got to be the primary message that goes out when revival happens. How else are they going to know how to live? Right? Like sometimes we think like, let's just go get people saved. Let's get them saved. And we're like saving people. And the next day they're saved. Like, well, go get somebody saved. You know, what are you doing? And they're like, I don't even know what I got saved into. What am I doing? And then we're like, send them out. Like, do this. We're just, we're just, I guess we're just machines that just saving people. You know, like that's all we do. And, and when there's nobody else to save, we're like, uh, what do I do now? And they would say, hey, it's how you live, right? The person who embodies the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle is the person who's bearing the fruit that God is looking for. Matthew 5, 19, 20. In the Sermon on the Mount, there are like these major statements embedded in his teaching. One of them is Matthew 5, 19, 20. He says, whoever does them, what he commands us to do in the Sermon on the Mount, and teaches them, woohoo, that's me, Right? And you guys, to all of your friends, your peers, your family, your children, your parents, whoever, it doesn't have to be teaching this settings. Anytime you have any measure of influence with anybody, you try to coach them in the, the values of the sermon. They may not even know what you're doing. They're saying, hey, what do you think I should do about my roommate? They keep using my toothbrush. Like, well, you need to confront them and destroy them. You know, no, no, you encourage them. Like, hey, why don't you go buy them their own toothbrush and toothpaste and don't say anything about it. Just go do it and just forgive them for doing it and never bring it up. 
you encourage them in that way. And Jesus says, you know, you're doing it and you're teaching others to do it. He's like, guess what? You're going to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Over a toothbrush, Jesus? Yes, over a toothbrush. Even as something as small as a glass of cold water. Why do you care about those things? I thought you were into like writing books that touch billions of people and stuff. He's like, no, I'm into these things. That's what touches my heart. The sermon is the means by which we measure our spiritual development and ministry impact. We measure our ministry impact by, uh, by how much people seek to live out the Sermon on the Mount values. Once again, it's really hard for us to actually measure. My point is we don't measure it by the amount of people that come to our meetings. We don't measure by how many books we sell. We don't measure by how many people buy our CDs if you're a worship leader or whatever. That's not the measure of how impactful your ministry's been. It's how much do they live out the Sermon on the Mount in their lives. That's how it is. It's a hard thing to measure, so you probably just shouldn't. Just do what Jesus tells you to do. Here's another one of those key verses in the Sermon on the Mount. It says in Matthew 5, 48, it says, Therefore, now I am ripping this right out of a lot of context, right? It's a hinge verse where it sums up what's previously been said and it leads into what's about to be said. And he says, Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I don't know about you guys, but for me, the first times I've read that, it has never been one of my favorite verses. That word perfect is not a fun word, right? So is there an eraser? Nope. So we'll do it here. Perfect. In the Greek, this word is... Telios. Uh, they don't have dots. You don't dot the I's in Greek. <laughs> so telios. So, but this verse, it sounds an awful lot like an Old Testament one, right? You shall be holy as God is holy, right? First Peter quotes it. But the word in Greek for holy is a different word. I don't know if you guys can see, so Sorry. It's agios, right? This is holy. What is teleos? doesn't actually mean perfect. Perfect's kind of a bad word choice because of the way we use it in English, right? Because we think of literal perfection like a robot or something, like never screws up, does it exactly right all the time, da-da-da-da-da. And that's not what perfect means in the sense. It's not what teleos means. So Jesus, he says this, you shall be Telios, just as your father in heaven is Telios. But they're good Jews, right? And they're here to say, wait, wait a minute. Jesus just misquoted that Old Testament verse. He should have said, you shall be agios, holy, but he doesn't say holy. He says Telios. Why does Jesus change the word up? What is he trying to convey? And my opinion is that he changed it because they had so many assumptions of what it meant to be holy. It's so many ideas. If I wash my hands before the certain means, if I tie the tenth of the mint and the cumin, if I do all these external things right, I'm holy before God. And he says, I'm not going to support their ideas of external righteousness when it's not alive on the inside. So he shocks them. He says, you shall be teleos. Well, what does teleos mean? And I, I should change this slide, right, because I'm kind of giving it away a little bit. But some of the best scholars, they say, well, let's start with holy. What does holy actually mean? And so 
you've probably heard, what are, what are some words you've heard for holy? Separate, right? That's a big one. Separate. Next time I'm going to have to find an eraser. Separate. It's pretty good, right? Yeah, thanks, Danny. Look, my lovely assistant, Danny. She's going to help me out. Uh, woo! Nah. So separate. But some, some of the guys say, you know what? Separate's actually not. I'm not even sure that's a real eraser. I don't know what that is. <laughs> but it's doing the job. So they say separate. And they say, well, actually, separate isn't actually the base meaning of what holy means. They actually say it means devoted. Actually, the most base understanding of what holy means is to be devoted. And your something is so devoted that they separate it unto God. It's so devoted to God that I'm going to separate this candlestick, this bread, this item in the temple, or this person. I'm going to s- separate it because it's so devoted. So let's, let's read this again. Therefore, you shall be so devoted to God just as your Father in heaven is so devoted to you. And so they've kind of lost the meaning, and so he uses the word teleos to bring back some of the understanding. And teleos kind of means like complete. And so one of the ideas that they're, I want you to be so complete, so devoted in your affections for God. Why? Because that's how he is towards you. I don't want you to have any mixture in your love and your devotion to him. I don't want you to have mixture in your actions. I want you to be fully his on the inside. I don't want you Ravi, where you're saying it on the outside, one thing, but your interior life is completely different. I don't want that. I want you fully mine, fully wholeheartedly devoted to me. Because why? Because that is how he is to you. So that's, that's a different reading to me than, therefore, you shall be outwardly perfect, just as your Father in heaven is outwardly always perfect and, you know, like, it has no heart behind it. All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, that's what you're getting at, Jesus. You want me to be fully given to you in this secret place where no one can see it. That's what he's after. We'll look at one last thing, and then we'll be done. So in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm asking you to make an outline tonight, right? And in that outline, the super stellar students who do this on time, they're going to see that there's some teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, right? And then there's some, they're going to break it down into different sections. And at the end of the teaching section where Jesus is like giving us actually like how to live type stuff, what to do and what not to do, he gives us a, an appeal. You could turn there in chapter 7 with me, 7-7. Seven, seven. Look at that. Next time you see 7-7 seven, seven on a clock, wait a minute. That never happens. But uh, you can remember this verse. And so it's, 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 it's as if Jesus is fully done teaching and you're thinking, how am I going to live this out? How am I going to do this? How am I going to go about this, Jesus? He says, well, I got that covered too. Let me tell you what you need to do after you've heard all of this. He says in verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds the one who knocks will be opened. Or, or which one of you, if a son asks for him bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And it's as if you and I are looking and we say, okay, Jesus, I heard what you taught. The things not to do, the things to watch out for, the things to do and to give myself to. And I'm trying to do it. And he says, you're not going to be able to do it on your own. 
you need to come and seek me. You need to ask. You need to knock. You need to seek. And those words in the Greek, it's clear that they're a continual. It's not a one time you ask. Jesus, help me live out the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, I'm good. I'm done. No, he says, you're going to have to keep coming back to me. It's like the Lord's Prayer. It's a daily prayer. Give us our daily bread. Why is it daily? Because we need it every day. We cannot do this without the help of the Holy Spirit. And so we have to seek him and ask him so that he would come and help us do it. So he says, hey, just know in your journey to flesh this out in your life, you're going to have to seek me continually. Don't stop asking. So you fail. You get up. You try to be meek or merciful or whatever, and you screw up and you chew out your roommate and you move on and you blah, 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 a thousand things. You give your word and you go back on your word and you say, gosh, Jesus, I did it again. He says, don't give up. Keep seeking me. Keep acknowledging that you failed. I love it when you say, I messed up, Jesus. He says, I know you were going to mess up before you messed up. I'm going to help you. I won't give you a stone if you come and seek me. I want to give you a fish. But he says, I won't do it unless you ask. He will not give us the help he wants to give us unless we ask for it. Because he will not force himself on us. Did you know even Jesus has to ask? Psalms 2, the Father says, ask of me the nations to Jesus, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Jesus doesn't receive the nations lest he asked. We know he wants them. The Father wants to give it to him, but for whatever reason, God set it up, I won't do it unless you say it. And so in our pursuit of the Sermon on the Mount, we have to remember, God's not going to give us the ability to do it unless we ask him for the ability to do it. We have to continually seek him and keep knocking on that door. Say, God, I still I get angry so easy. God, I still deal with lust every day. God, help me. I don't want it in my heart. And I think his heart just goes, oh, I love it. Look at them. They're struggling and they're seeking me in the midst of it. I love their desire, their devotion to me. That's wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness isn't I never screw up ever. It's that I never like it when I screw up. That I always acknowledge and I say, Jesus, I don't want this way. I need your help. Help me. I love to sermon them out, but I just can't do it without your help. And we don't justify it and write it off and make it mean something else where we don't have to do it. We let the struggle reside. And we say, I'm not there, but I'm not giving up hope. I'm going to come back and knock one more day on his door. I'm going to try one more time to forgive my roommate. And we keep going for it. So let me pray for you, and then we'll talk about homework. So God, I just ask on our journey, God, of living this out and loving it as you love it, God, that you'd speak to us. God, that it wouldn't just be my words. It would be your words, Jesus. Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would... Teach them the Sermon on the Mount, God, that you would come and you'd teach it to us, God. Open our eyes. Give us ears that can hear, God, that we wouldn't be dull or sluggish, that we wouldn't be sluggish imitators of you. God, that we would be alive on the inside, God. So we ask that you come and give us ears that can hear, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So homework really quick. Uh, I'm asking you guys, this isn't on the homework, so this is the one time you're going to hear it, right? And I'll bug you about it. Uh, Read the Sermon out at least once a week. But I'm doing like other readings for school that I have to do. I promise you, it takes like all of 15 minutes to read the Sermon out. Like, you got time, promise. Uh, so do it every week. If you want to be like really intense, do it every day, right? And you're like, but I'm doing that. What's that thing a lot of people are doing? That shred. They listen to like the whole Bible in a month or something. Anybody doing that? No? All right, well, I thought it was a big thing in school. So <laughs> apparently I'm wrong, so... So first thing I'm asking you is read the Sermon on the Mount at least once a week. When you do it, talk to Jesus about it. 
Ask him. And then write down things that stand out to you. When I read the Bible, I write down tons of stuff. I write down questions I have that I don't know the answer to. And you don't have to have the answer to it. I write down prayers. I say, man, I really want that. That's really good. I want to be devoted to you as you're devoted to me. And I'll, I'll include it into my prayer life. So do the devotional side. Do the geeky head side. Well, what's the word behind this? I wonder what the Greek is. Da, da, da. Do it all. Use all of your capacities to love God. Right? So I want you to do that first. Second, you're going to make an outline. Where's my non-eraser? Whatever this goes to, the sound guys. It feels like a like, sound guy like it holds a mic or something. They're going to be like, who ruined this? All right, so I'm going to draw like... What I'm looking for, basically, in an outline is I want you to group parts of the text that make sense to go together. So I'm going to help you a little bit because I want it to be easier for you. So, like, it's easy, the Beatitudes. There's the Beatitudes, right? So I want you, on your homework, now the bummer is when you do it on this website thing that you, school minister has, it imports it into, like, no paragraphs, everything. So it's like, I get that. It's going to suck. And it makes it, it'd be so awesome if it's kept your outline. It makes me way quicker to see what you guys did than to look at just a jumbled text. But just suffer it. So the Beatitudes, I want you to give me the verses. Uh-oh, I'm getting tested here. One, two, through, I don't know, 12, something like that. Is that right? Not one. Danny gave me an ugly look like that's so wrong. Five, verses two through 12. Something like that, right? Is that the Beatitudes? Three through 11-ish. Okay, so you're going to do that. You're going to give me the chapter and verse, and then you're not going to write Beatitudes. That's too easy. You're going to write, what are they? You're going to write it in your words and say, this is what this section is, and this is what it does. These are the da 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 However it makes sense to you. So, so that means you have to read it and think about it, right? And you're going to do the next section, which is, I know what it is. I'm a little shoddy on the actual verses. Salt and light. Guess what? You don't get to use the word salt and light, though. You get to say, what is the point of that section, those paragraphs? So you're going to give me the chapter and the verse, whatever it is, and you're going to write it in your words what it is. You're going to say, blah, 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 blah. This is what it's about, right? Do not use your subheadings in your Bible. I'll be like, meh, boring if you do, okay? So don't do that. You're going to do that for each of the sections. So the next section, 5, 18 to 20 or something like that, you're going to tell me what is the point of it in your own words. If it takes you one sentence, cool. If it takes you a paragraph, cool. You're going to break down the whole entire Sermon on the Mount like that. And now what you might find is when you do that, you have point here, point here, point here. Well, oh, my gosh. Actually, those are little points under a big point. Does that make sense? Like the Beatitudes, right? There's eight or nine points underneath one big summary. And then you could give a quick description of each Beatitude. Oh, it's about this. It's about this. It's about this. But I want you to do that for the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's going to take you time, right? What you don't have to do is rewrite the entire Sermon on the Mount in your own words, all right? I've had many people do that. And I'm like, whoa, that's amazing. But I feel bad that's what you thought I was asking you to do. I want you to summarize whole paragraphs and sections, right? Think about them, what they actually mean. Okay, that's basically the homework. Um, my general rule for class is if you do the homework, 
Uh, we do class on Tuesday. If you have it in by Sunday at noon, I'll check it and read it. And I'll do it before Sunday. So I'll check some earlier this week, like later this week I'll check. And then it's Sunday at noon, I'm going to open up BSSM online and I'm going to start looking at homework and going through them. And I try to respond to you with meaningful. I mean, there are 57 of you guys. So like that's a lot of homework through, especially if you write like a book for me. I'm like, whoa. But I'll try to do it. But usually what happens, this is a general thing that happens, about 50% of you will do the first homework on time. 20% the second homework. And then by the end, everybody's turning in like eight homework assignments on the last week when it's due. And I'm like, I cannot read eight times 57 in one week. So my general rule is if that's, if you turn it in after, I'm just going to look at it briefly and give you like a check mark that it was done. If I look at it, I'm like, this is grossly incomplete. I'm going to send it back to you. And be like, you got to redo this. Like you didn't even do anything. It was just blank. You know what I mean? So that's generally kind of how I work. So don't be offended if you just get a check mark. It just means like I was just quickly skimming to see if you did it. But if you do it the week of, I would try to respond to you. And the way I'm saying, hey, these are the students who actually want feedback. And I want to honor you and give you that feedback because I feel like that's what a Bible teacher should do. So that's my goal, okay? So <laughs> forgive me if I don't live up to it, but that's my general goal. All right, cool. That's it. We'll see you guys next week.